uh, let me go ahead and open us with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the gift of this time. We thank you for the gift of C.S. Lewis and the Screwtape Letters. Lord, we pray that as we look at this letter tonight and think about habits to cultivate that would be annoying to the devil, that you would clothe us in your armor, that we might be prepared to stand against the schemes of the evil one. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's called The Lark Ascending, and it is by Rafe Vaughn Williams. The Lark Ascending. And when eventually we will get to why we are listening to that piece. You might remember last week we were listening to another piece by that same composer that was radically different from that. Um, and if you come to church on Sunday, you will hear a glorious rendition of probably the most famous hymn that Ray Fawn Williams wrote, which is for all, no, for all the saints, for All Saints Day. Well, this tune to all the, uh, um, he who would valiant be, to be a pilgrim, is the one that is sung in England, but we sing the other one. Right. We've got to get back to Ray Fawn Williams. <laughs> oh, that's the wonderful one. All right, so... Here we are with this verse that, uh, if you're in church tonight, uh, is particularly appropriate. The, the whole armor of God standing against the schemes of the devil. So let us say this together. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. And as we've said before, there are a number of reasons why I think this book is particularly important right now. One is understanding the battle. We live in a culture that wants to say there's no such thing as evil, that everything should be accepted, um, that there's no such thing as evil. So understanding this battle is really important. The second Thinking Christianly, thinking is an active verb there uh, that requires action on our part. Thinking Christianly is really important, as is a Christian worldview. The psychology of temptation, uh, habits to cultivate the deepened faith in Christ. 
you will notice as we go through this, habits, just that word keeps showing up over and over and over again. And then lastly, living a boldly Christian life. And the idea of that is that, as one author has said, you want to be that person that when you wake up in the morning, the devil says, oh, no. (laughs) You don't want to be the person that the devil doesn't care whether you're awake or not. So uh, we've talked about the importance of habits. When we get to letter 13, he will unpack that a little bit more. This quotation from the common rule uh, about how habits are the way that we move from our head and thinking about things to actually doing them. So habits to cultivate from letter one, connecting, thinking, and doing. Uh, That seems obvious, but many of us have trouble with that. Uh, We, as I was talking about in the sermon, we may say that our values are one thing, but we don't really live that way. Um, Focusing on universal issues, what is true, good, and beautiful, rather than the immediate stream of ordinary life, setting your mind on things above, spending time in beautiful places, reading things that make you think, exploring the real sciences and the wonder that comes with that, and then thinking about what does it mean to love God with your mind. And then... From letter two, embracing Christianity not just as a theory, but by investing your life and being transformed. Deepening your understanding of the church and scripture and in history. Looking at others through the lens of Christ rather than through what our culture values or what you personally value. Focus on the ultimate goal and the joy of following Christ. Focusing on commitment rather than the emotion and that whole cathedral metaphor, what are you building? And then constantly keep at the front of your heart and mind a sense of wonder at God's grace and mercy. And this is what we were talking about in the sermon tonight in the service, but it is all too easy for us to become pharisaical without even realizing it, and that the more that we understand the depth of God's mercy and grace the more we will respond to him in love. Letter three, keeping your relationships surrounded with prayer and the Holy Spirit, not letting Satan get a foothold, avoiding roots of bitterness, um, cultivating the integration of your spiritual life and your outward behavior, practicing nurturing and practical prayer for others, believing the best, avoiding the bless her heart kind of prayer, Uh, being gracious in all circumstances and speaking life, not letting your tongue run away to speak death, and then cultivating spiritual humility, being glad for other spiritual growth and gifts. Letter four, praying with serious, focused attention, praying expectantly, not by rote, considering your setting and your posture, um, embracing beauty, following biblical examples of prayer, and then focusing on Christ and his kingdom, not just on what you want to pray about for yourself and what your feelings are, and then being confident that God's presence is with you, invisible and yet completely real. And for those of you that were on the Canuga retreat this weekend, it was remarkable 
how what Kendall Harmon talked about fleshed out what we've been talking about in prayer um, here from this screw tape letter. And then from letter five, bolstering faith and cultivating virtue uh, in the face of war or calamity, crying out to God in prayer right in the moment of it, not trying to fix it, not trying to rationalize it, not trying to use your own powers to control your circumstances, but crying out to God. And then focusing on things that are bigger than yourself. We live in a very narcissistic, self-absorbed culture. And so our tendency is to focus on ourself and the way we feel about things before anything else. Um, Then this whole idea of understanding your mortality. We live in a culture that is denying the fact that all of us will eventually die. We want to be healthy. We want to eat right. We want to do the keto diet. We want to do all of these different things that are going to make us healthy. Um, We want to be able to have plastic surgery so we look younger than we are. I mean, there are all of these things that are designed to kind of cheat the grim reaper. But the problem is they don't work. They don't work. I'm sorry to tell you, but no one is getting out of here alive. And the idea of mortality is so important because if you believe that you're going to live on this earth forever, then you're not thinking very much about what is going to happen once you die because you don't really believe you're going to. Contrast that to the way things were in the really up through the 19th century where most people died at home uh, where people regularly went to the cemetery where the life expectancy was much less than it is now and as we said last week it's not an accident that churches were built in the middle of graveyards because it's to remind you that this mortal life is not all that there is. And then the last thing, avoid contented worldliness. In that letter five, there's a whole thing from Screwtape about how contented worldliness is the best thing that can ever happen from the devil's point of view. Because when you're contented and worldly, you don't think about the spiritual realm at all. It's not on your radar screen And you are susceptible to all manner of manipulation um, from Satan and his minions. And you have no sense that you need God. And we talked about the parable of the bigger barns or the rich fool. um, And that is a parable that really is a parable for our time. That people think if you've got enough money in your 401k, you're good to go. You don't need to worry about anything. So that brings us to these truths about spiritual warfare from letter five. And every occasionally in these letters, there are going to be just some little insights that are not so much about habits, but they are about uh, spiritual warfare and some insights kind of from the other point of view uh, that can be very useful. So the first one is that the devil seeks to fill you with anguish and bewilderment and despair. And so therefore, when you are experiencing those things, that is a particularly important time to resist the devil. 
Now, that does not mean that there aren't going to be things that cause you anguish and sadness and all of that. But the question is, what do you do with them? Do you just dwell in that place and go into a downward spiral, or do you resist? And then the second thing is that, in case you didn't know this already, this one's (laughs) fairly obvious, but the devil is constantly seeking to undermine your faith and prevent you from cultivating habits of virtue. We may think, oh, I'm just lazy, that's what the problem is in trying to develop this habit. But scripture and the screw tape letters are both very clear that the devil is out to stop you from developing these good habits. Because if you develop them, you are going to start making a difference for the kingdom of God. And that is not what Satan wants to have happen. So, Letter six. This letter is a little bit complicated, but do not worry. We are going to unpack it, and if I'm not sufficiently capable of unpacking it, I also have a little video that we're going to watch that I think will help us unpack it. So sometimes when you get all of these upside-down perspectives, it gets you get a little bit lost. Maybe y'all don't, but um, it's easy to get a little bit lost. So here we go. Still on the subject of the war. My dear Wormwood, I'm delighted to hear that your patient's age and profession make it possible, but by no means certain, that he will be called up for military service. We want him to be in the maximum uncertainty, so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. There's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Your patient will, of course, have picked up the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will. What the enemy means by this is primarily that he should accept with patience the tribulation which has actually been dealt out to him, the present anxiety and suspense. It is about this that he is to say, thy will be done, and for the daily task of hearing this that the daily bread will be provided. It is your business to see that the patient never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross, but only of the things that he is afraid of. Let him regard them as his crosses. Let him forget that since they are incompatible, they cannot all happen to him. And let him try to practice fortitude and patience to them all in advance. For real resignation at the same moment to a dozen different and hypothetical fates is almost impossible. And the enemy does not greatly assist those who are trying to attain it. Resignation to present and actual suffering, even where that suffering consists of fear, is far easier and is usually helped by this direct action. An important spiritual law is here involved. I have explained that you can weaken his prayers by diverting his attention from the enemy himself to his own states of mind about the enemy. On the other hand, fear becomes easier to master when the patient's mind is diverted from the thing feared to the fear itself, considered as a present and undesirable state of his own mind. And when he regards the fear as his appointed cross, he will inevitably think of it as a state of mind. 
One can therefore formulate the general rule in all activities of mind which favor our cause, that is, Satan's cause, encourage the patient to be unselfconscious and to concentrate on the object, but in all activities favorable to the enemy, bend his mind back on itself. Let an insult or a woman's body so fix his attention outward that he does not reflect, I am now entering into the state called anger or the state called lust. Contrarywise, let the reflection, my feelings are now growing more devout or more charitable, so fix his attention inward that he no longer looks beyond himself to see our enemy or his own neighbors. As regards his more general attitude to the war, you must not rely too much on those feelings of hatred which the humans are so fond of discussing in Christian or anti-Christian periodicals. In his anguish, the patient can, of course, be encouraged to revenge himself by some vindictive feelings directed toward the German leaders. And that is good so far as it goes. But it is usually a sort of melodramatic or mythical hatred directed against imaginary scapegoats. He has never met these people in real life. They are lay figures modeled on what he gets from newspapers. The results of such fanciful hatred are often most (coughs) disappointing. And of all humans, the English are in this respect the most deplorable milksops. They are creatures of that miserable sort who loudly proclaim that torture is too good for their enemies and then give tea and cigarettes to the first wounded German pilot who shows up at the back door. Oh, how wonderful. Do what you will, there's going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors whom he meets every day and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference to people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary. There is no good at all in inflaming his hatred of Germans if at the same time a pernicious habit of charity is growing up between him and his mother, his employer, and the man he meets in the train. Think of your man as a series of concentric circles, his will being the innermost, his intellect coming next, and finally his fantasy. You can hardly hope at once to exclude from all the circles everything that smells of the enemy, but you must keep on shoving all the virtues outward till they're finally located in the circle of fantasy and all the desirable qualities inward into the will. It is only insofar as they reach the will and are there embodied in habits, oh, there's that word again, that the virtues are really fatal to us. I don't, of course, mean what the patient mistakes for his will, the conscious fume and fret of resolutions and clenched teeth, but the real center, what the enemy calls the heart. All sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved by the intellect or even in some measure loved and admired will not keep a man from our father's house. Indeed, they may make him more amusing when he gets there. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So, I don't know how much of that you've got. There's a lot in there. And so we are going to have a little multimedia study aid, which I think may help us a little bit. Thank you.
Here, or do I need to turn it up? I didn't know what else to do. What did they say? They didn't say much at all, actually. Well, they must have told you something. Nothing helpful, I'm afraid. My age and profession make it possible, but not certain, that I will be called up for military service. Oh. When will you know? I haven't the foggiest. You are now as informed as I. <sighs> About that too. <coughs> Come into the kitchen. This is your progress report, Wormwood. That he may be called to military service, or he may not. Uh, yes, Uncle. Um, I, I had hoped for a more decisive situation. Mm. Had he been called up, I could have made much of the forthcoming danger. Had he been left at home, I could have made much of the rejection, the innate feeling of rejection and, and cowardice. But here I see little opportunity. Which is why I asked for your help. Frankly, Wormwood, this situation abounds with opportunity. I am delighted by it. Delighted? Yes. Yes, we want him to be in the maximum uncertainty, so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. There's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. How so? Don't you understand? The enemy wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Your patient will, of course, have picked up the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will. What the enemy means by this is primarily that he should accept with patience the tribulation which has actually been dealt out to him. The present anxiety and suspense. It is about this that he is to say, Thy will be done. <coughs> and for the daily task of bearing this, that the daily bread will be provided. It is your business to see that the patient never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross, but only of all the things he is afraid of. Let him regard them as his crosses. Let him forget that, since they are incompatible, they cannot all happen to him, and let him try to practice fortitude and patience to them all in advance. But isn't it impossible for him to know how to respond to a dozen different <coughs> and hypothetical fates? <laughs> it is, but your patient doesn't know that. Listen closely, Wormwood. This is the basic and important spiritual law. All right. You remember how I explained that you can weaken his prayers by diverting his attention from the enemy himself to his own state of mind about the enemy. Right. On the other hand, fear becomes easier to master when the patient's mind is diverted from the thing feared to the fear itself, considered as an undesirable state of his own mind. And when he regards the fear as his appointed cross, he will inevitably think of it as a state of mind. It sounds complicated. Wouldn't it be simpler to use his general feelings of hatred towards the Germans? Hatred is easy to manipulate. I like hatred. And there you show your lack of experience in education. What do you mean by hatred? Hmm? Hmm? Do you mean those feelings of hatred with its talk of bravado and revenge, which humans are so fond of discussing in their periodicals? Hmm? You must not rely on those. 
I thought revenge was one of our favourites. To be sure, the patient can, in his anguish, be encouraged to revenge himself by some vindictive feelings directed towards the German leaders, and that is good as far as it goes. But it's usually a sort of uh, melodramatic or mythical hatred directed against imaginary scapegoats. He's never met these people in real life. They are caricatures modelled on what he gets from newspapers. The results of such Fanciful hatred are often most disappointing, and of all humans, the English are, in this respect, the most deplorable milksops. Mm -hmm. They are creatures of that miserable sort who loudly proclaim that torture is too good for their enemies, and then give tea and cigarettes to the first wounded German pilot who turns up at the back door. It's disgustingly true. <laughs> Do what you will, there is going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. The great thing is to direct the malice to the immediate neighbours whom he meets every day and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference to people he does not know. Thus malice becomes wholly real and benevolence largely imaginary. <laughs> uh, there's no good at all in inflaming his hatred of Germans if at the same time a pernicious habit of charity is growing up between him and his mother, his employer, and the man he meets on the train. I understand. Mm. No, you don't. <laughs> Look, you must think of your man as a series of concentric circles, will being the innermost, his intellect coming next, and finally, his fantasy. You can hardly hope at once to exclude from all circles everything that smells of the enemy. You mean the Germans? No, no, not them, you fool. I mean the real enemy. <laughs> he wants virtues to permeate all of those circles within the patient, especially the will, while you must keep on shoving all the virtues outwards until they are finally located in the circle of fantasy. It is only when the virtues reach the will and are there embodied in habits that they are really fatal to us. I, I, I want to be clear, when you say his will, do you mean his, his resolution? No. That is often what the patient mistakes for his will. The conscious fume and fret of resolution and clenched teeth. No, I am talking about the real center. What the enemy calls the heart. But, but aren't any virtues a worry to us, even if they reside in the, the circle of fantasy? No, 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 no! All sorts of virtues painted in the circle of fantasy or approved by the intellect, or even in some measure, loved and admired, will not keep a man from our father's house. <laughs> Indeed, they make him more amusing when he gets there. <laughs> okay, that's a little creepy. <laughs> so who knows what's Andy Serkin's most Gollum. famous role? Gollum. Yes, Gollum and the Lord of the Rings. So they picked the perfect person to do that. So I hope that maybe helped a little bit. The C.S. Lewis doodles are a great resource if you ever get confused when you're reading Lewis. Um, the guy that does these is just a genius, and so they are they are quite amusing. So, yes? 
I think in some ways it's a saying that people rarely say now, but the, the portion of the, the circles is adequately captured or appropriately captured with the old saying of the road to hell is paved, paved with good intentions. Yeah. Yes, the, yeah. that's the key. That's exactly Push right, and we are going to we're going to get Lewis's variation of that and a couple of letters. <laughs> but, but you're exactly right. You're anticipating right where he's going. So, habits to annoy the devil from this letter. So, the first one is to dwell in the present and refuse to embrace worry, fear, and anxiety for the future. This is not really a word, but it has entered into our vocabulary, um, the idea of awfulizing. And it's sort of the idea, it would be awful if this happened. It would be awful if that happened. It would be awful, and you know, what he's saying here is that the patient should be encouraged to think of at least 12 things that are awful, which are mutually exclusive, but he's going to worry himself to death about each one of them, and then see each one of those 12 things is something that he has to fight against and try to develop spiritual fortitude about, which, of course, is not the scriptural way. Uh, it is interesting how often... In Screwtape, Lewis is coming back to the Sermon on the Mount and coming back especially to chapter 6. And that is the whole uh, chapter that has the do not worry, do not be anxious command over and over and over in it. So uh, there's that whole section about do not worry and it ends with but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious. Note that that's an imperative command right there, not a suggestion. <laughs> Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And part of what Screwtape is saying in this letter to Wormwood is that you want to keep the patient away from this understanding. You want the patient to be worried to death all the time about everything that could ever happen in the future. Um, Worried about what's going to happen in his life, what's going to happen in the lives of his friends. Worry, 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 worry. How much good does worrying do? None. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. And what Screwtape says that the enemy, what God wants to do, is to have you only be concerned about what's on your plate for that day. To not look beyond, to not worry, um, to focus, to do just what Jesus says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So what he's saying is that the anxiety that you feel just in that particular day, just on that day, about what is happening that day, that's all that is your cross to bear for that day. Worrying about the whole future, worrying about the collapse of European and Western civilization because of World War II, you don't need to take that on. That's not your call. And the interesting thing about this, and I think this is so easy to skip over, and this is where the lark ascending comes in. Uh, it is interesting that you may have noticed that woven all through 
this sixth chapter of Matthew about do not be anxious is consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air. Consider is a word that we don't think about very much. Consider doesn't mean just think briefly about something. To consider something, I like to think of the idea of taking it out of a box and putting it in front of you and looking at it from multiple angles and observing it. It is a thoughtful contemplation when you consider something. And here, one of the things we're called to do is to consider the lilies of the field, to consider the birds of the air. And there's some connection there with not being anxious. And I would like to suggest that part of the connection is that when we see the beauty that God has created, and we see the order, even when the world seems like it's running out of control, the flowers are still blooming, the birds are still flying, and we see that order, that should build our trust and our sense of who God is. And when we fail to consider those things, when we fail to use that beauty as a pointer to the kingdom of God, we become much more anxious because we get all wrapped up in our own situations. And I think that this is something that if you begin trying to practice this, consider the lilies of the field. Um, My application of this today was to consider the tea olive um, because there's a wonderful tea olive in the back part of the churchyard. We have several really magnificent ones around here, but the one in the back is smaller. And the tea olive is such an interesting bush because it's not a big showy bush. It also doesn't have a big showy fragrance like a gardenia or a magnolia, but it has this undefinably sweet sort of <coughs> citrusy, like you can't quite get the scent of it. And I think it's such a great metaphor for what Jesus is talking about here. When you consider that and the fact that God made that and that that blooms through no effort of our own. I wish I could say we had a team of gardeners that were out cultivating in the churchyard, but I can tell you benign neglect is probably too kind uh, for the plants in the churchyard. And yet they bloom because their Heavenly Father is taking care of them. So that is part of the way that we dwell in the present and we refuse to embrace this awfulizing about the future. The I second thing. After Hugo, no leaves, but the blossoms came out, and you had the, um, you know, the the scent of the tea olive with the odiferous uh, scent, smell of the pluff mud. Right. <laughs> yes. So the second thing: discipline your mind to be sensitive to sinful patterns of thoughts and temptations, so as to avoid them while having a bias toward acting rather than simply feeling when it comes to acts of obedience. And this is sort of the reverse of that part of the letter where he's saying when you see the beautiful woman in the street or whatever, you don't, you don't want to, if you're, if you're Satan, you don't want the patient to think about, oh, this is not somewhere where I should be going I need to rein in that thought pattern. You want to just 
if you're Satan, you want no thought whatsoever. Just go with the flow like an instinct, almost like an animal. And so, of course, for us trying to follow God, we want to do the opposite of that. We want to be aware of sinful patterns of thought that are beginning as soon as they begin so that we can take those thoughts captive. On the other hand, we don't want to just have thoughts like we saw, and he did a great job of this in the little doodle, (laughs) thoughts of being charitable that are for this vague group of people that are way out there that are largely imaginary, where at the same time we're just mean to everyone who is around us. Unfortunately, it is all too often the case that that's the way it works. We may be very moved to give money to a mission that's in another country while at the same time hardening our hearts to people that are in our own lives and in our own neighborhoods who have very real needs. And it's not an accident that when Jesus tells the disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations, where do they start? Yeah, in Jerusalem and then Samaria and then they go on to the ends of the earth. But we so often like to sort of skip over all that and think about the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth do need the gospel. There's no doubt about that. But it's much easier sometimes uh, to dwell in that fantasy circle. This always reminds me when I think about this, it'd probably be better if this were a story about myself, but um, I'm, I'm reminded of this friend of mine that was from a very wealthy family in Atlanta. And he was in his 20s, and he was going to buy a house. And he was going to buy a house, and the areas that he was looking were all very nice areas. There's not anything wrong with buying a house. But the thing that was funny is that he insisted that when he bought his $500,000 house, and this was in the 80s, that's a lot of money back in the 80s, especially for a 20-year-old, that he was not going to buy a house in Buckhead, which was the more posh area, but he was going to buy a house that was in Morningside because it was closer to where the poor lived. And that somehow that was virtuous. And, you know, and we had multiple discussions about this. And he just insisted that he was virtuous because he was not buying a house in Buckhead. And he was buying one in Morningside because it was nearer to the poor. And you just, you're just like, what? But the problem is we, we all are like that. We all are like that, that we we sort of justify and rationalize our behavior because we'll put up a straw man. If if I did that, that would be really bad. But if I do this, that's not so bad. There are a lot of people that are doing that. So if I do this, I'm good. So we need to develop this kind of discipline of mind. And there's this great passage Um, from 2 Corinthians where he says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ and that's the idea, I love that idea of taking your thoughts captive, trying to make sure that when you get these trains of thought that start going off in bad directions 
that you, uh, it's almost like throwing a net and reeling them back in. And then the third point, focus on fostering love and charity and individual relationships with real people. You can't have a relationship with a stereotype or a fantasy. You can only actually have a relationship with real people, which, of course, is exactly what Jesus means when he talks about loving your neighbor. And I love this little Peanuts cartoon. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. I'm sure none of us have ever, ever said anything like that. But the point of it is that we need to look at who are the people that God is putting in our path. God puts people in your path. And on our retreat this weekend, Kendall Harmon was really good about talking about this. But often we are not alert to those kinds of things of God putting people in our path. And it is something that we, when we become aware of it, you can lean into it in a way where you can try to show love toward those people, that you can try to foster that relationship. So Jesus talks about loving your neighbor, and you will remember he uses a particular parable to illustrate that, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what do the first several people in the parable do when they see the man? Is he in their path? Yes. 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 He's right in their path. They probably have to walk around him. But they don't engage in relationship with him. And they have some very good reasons. They have some very good reasons. You know, the the priest and the Levite, if they deal with this guy, they're going to be ritually unclean. They won't be able to go do what they're supposed to do in the temple. You know, all of those kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is the guy is in their path. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus tells this parable this way. The guy is in their path. And the person who is commended for loving his neighbor is the one that stops and notices the person who is in the path, even though it is inconvenient and the person is needy, and he deals with that person that is in the path. Now, that is not easy to do. We are all very important people, and we are all busy, and we have places we need to go. But I will tell you, when God puts somebody in your path, you should stop and take notice. And if God puts somebody in your path repeatedly, you should really stop and take notice. Because I think God does not do that by accident. People show up in your path for a reason. But if you don't engage with them, you will never know what that reason is. So... Um, I had a small example of this recently when I was in Washington for Edward Bennett's wedding. Some of y'all know Edward Bennett, who grew up here um, in this congregation. And it was a very large wedding. And I had done his cousin's wedding earlier in the summer 
which was also a very large wedding. But while I was doing the cousin's wedding here, the cousin was Penn Haygood's daughter, when I was doing that wedding, one of Penn's other cousins um, was the crucifer for the ceremony, and we were stuck. You probably don't know this, but when you are getting married at St. Philip's and you're the bride, you get to come over here, and this room is beautiful, and there are refreshments and all of that. If you're the groom or the clergyman, you go in the small vestment sacristy closet um, that's behind the organ, and you sit there for 45 minutes. And you sit, and you're just sitting there. And it's, it's really bad if they're extra musicians because there's literally no room because it's full of, like, tuba cases and all that. But anyway, I was stuck in this room for 45 minutes with Penn's daughter's now husband and Penn's cousin, who was the crucifer at this wedding. So I thought, well, we might as well talk. You know, and um, I knew her husband pretty well because he and I've got to be friends. But I didn't know the Christopher at all. So we talked. We ended up actually having an amazing conversation. So then, fast forward. You know, don't think I'm ever going to see this guy again. Fast forward to Edward Bennett's wedding. At the reception, there's a seated dinner for 500 people, which is a lot of people. So I go to my table. And guess whose place card is next to mine? The Crucifer. Well, I don't think that was an accident. And we ended up having another really amazing conversation. But, you know, it's one of those things where I think when you begin to be alert to that, and I still don't know what God was up to with that, but when you begin to be alert to that, you at least have the possibility of experiencing what God has planned for you. Um, So often, and I think a a beautiful analogy for this is that imagine that you came downstairs as a small child on Christmas morning, and there are all of these beautifully wrapped presents, and you go around, I'm sure none of you ever did this, and look (laughs) for ones that have your name on them, and then you sort of pull those sort of to the side. But imagine that you did that, and then you just walked off and just left them there, and then eventually Christmas was over, and they were thrown out. Well, that would be really sad. But I think it's sort of what happens when God puts individuals in our path, and we don't respond. So just be more alert about that. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person that you walk by you have to engage with. But what it does mean is that we need to be more open to those possibilities. Yes? I'm going to try and summarize that and see if you think that the whole, all these previous two slides, it's avoid hypotheticals, live the moment. Yes. Because as soon as you start getting into hypotheticals, you get into, I don't have time. That's exactly you know, right. I'm going to do yep. this. Yep. Tomorrow I'll make up That's for exactly it. I know right. I should have done something. Yes. But as, as soon as you're hypothetical, then... Wormwood has the upper hand. That's exactly right. In the moment, Wormwood doesn't have the upper hand because you are doing something then and there, even if it's small or trivial. Yep. It's something. Yep. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Good. And the doers of the word not hearers. Yes, exactly. So remember, real people, 
Um, there's a great book about this that I keep recommending that I haven't read. Um, I've read lots of excerpts from it, um, but it's by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, uh, and it is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And Rosaria, do y'all know who Rosaria Butterfield is? Her other book was so yeah. good. Um, her story. Her story about how she got converted. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I forget the name of it. So Rosaria Butterfield, for those of you who don't know, was a tenured professor at Syracuse University who was a professor of women's studies and queer studies. Um, she was married to her female partner. Um, she was vehemently anti-Christian, um, embraced every sort of radical viewpoint that you could imagine. But she had the misfortune to live next door to a very hospitable Presbyterian minister and his wife. And these people practiced relentless hospitality on her. And they were so relentless in their hospitality. And they invested in her life. They went to go hear some speakers that would curl your hair um, to show that they cared about her. But to make a long story short, she eventually ended up coming to Christ renounced her lifestyle, got married to a man. Um, It's the most amazing story of someone being transformed by Jesus Christ. But she is a great advocate for loving your neighbor. So the gospel comes with a house key. Yeah, so um, really good stuff. So the fourth habit Keep will and intellect and fantasy straight in your thinking and submitted to the Holy Spirit. This is so important because, as we've talked about, and Pedro was hitting on this as well, that when it's all hypothetical, Satan is dancing with glee (laughs) because you can hypothetically help all kinds of people and you can feel so virtuous because I thought about how to help them. But as in the book of James, it says, you know, what good does it do to say to your brother, go and be warm? You know, that doesn't really accomplish anything. And so what the letter, and I think this is, this is something that's important to really get a hold of. It is only insofar as virtues reach the will and are there embodied into habits that they are really fatal to us. Look at that word, fatal, fatal to the devil. When these good habits, virtues happen, they are fatal to the work of the devil. And then he says, I don't, of course, mean what the patient mistakes for his will, the conscious fume and fret of resolutions and clenched teeth, but the real center, what the enemy calls the heart. All sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved by the intellect, or even to some measure loved and admired, will not keep a man from our father's house. Indeed, they may make him more amusing when he gets there. And you might remember in the little doodle, right before the maniacal laughing starts, that he has the picture of the patient being dragged to our father below's house with his arm and a shackle, and he says, you know, in the little bubble, it says something. I was thinking about doing good things, <laughs> you know, and that, that's what makes him amusing is because he's going to argue yeah. 
while he's down there. Well, I don't deserve to be here. I was trying to do a good thing. You just didn't give me enough time. If I could have lived longer, it would have all been all right. All these things that you're telling me, I'm in the wrong place. I'm supposed to be in heaven. You got the wrong address. You know, all of those kinds of things. That is very amusing to the other side. But the point here is that when these virtues get embodied into habits, they become fatal to the enemy. So just to to go back again to the lark ascending just for a moment. The lark ascending is an absolutely spectacularly beautiful piece of music, as well as being a, Cynthia should not feel bad, it is a virtuoso violin piece that is something there are not a lot of people that can play that. But what it tries to do is to capture the idea of a beautiful early summer morning with the lark springing out of the field and soaring up into a beautiful blue sky. And one of the great virtues of it is if you want to try to consider, if you listen to that while you think about that idea, it will be transformative to your considering. So if you experience any anxiety this week, I'm sure that None of you ever experience anxiety, and that when you do, you immediately give it to the Lord, and you don't worry at all. But should you slip up momentarily, I would encourage you to think about this idea of considering the lilies of the field and actually go out and consider some flowers or something beautiful in nature. Consider the birds of the air. Listen to that music, the lark ascending Uh, It's just beautiful, and it will reorder your thinking and your priorities in a way that I think will be salutary. So just to close, as always, with this quotation, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So with that, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this book and for the wisdom that is contained in it. Lord, we confess to you that we are anxious creatures, that we dwell so often in anxiety. We pray that you would help us take seriously Jesus' words, the sufficient to the day, is the trouble thereof. Lord, we pray that you would help us cultivate these habits of virtue that are fatal to the cause of the enemy. And Lord, in the midst of all this, we pray that you would always help us to set our minds on things above. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say a little announcement.